Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Y'all doing okay today? You need your Bibles because something happened last night that didn't make it into the notes today. So you're really going to need your Bibles when we get to Revelation 2. Um, But we're going to be in the 23rd Psalm is our primary text for the day. And part of Luke 15, we'll reference it a lot, but we will jump into Revelation 2 for a few moments um, and uh, go from there. Uh, I want to just kind of apologize if you are just kind of beginning to join us in this series uh, today because I don't know that I've ever done a series before that it has felt to me like this week's message was really kind of dependent on last week's message. It's kind of building somewhat on one another and kind of integrated in some ways. And uh, I, I'm trying to make them stand alone as much as possible also, but uh, it's hard to talk about some of this w- without addressing, uh, kind of building on it componently, if you would. Um, uh, Psalm 23 is where I want to start. You probably are very familiar with it, but I want us to look at it together. And it simply says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters, and he restores my soul. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you in this moment grateful that you are our shepherd. For those of us who have put our trust in Jesus, you are the shepherd of our souls. And we are grateful for that eternal good news that you, O Lord, restore our souls. Do it again, God. Please. In the hearts of those in this room, in the hearts of those that are joining us online, do it again, God. We need a soul-restoring touch from you. It's in the name of Jesus, our Savior and Good Shepherd, that we pray. Amen. Now, a a few weeks ago, we kind of launched into this series, and I told you a lot of the the thoughts come from a distant mentor. Uh, I consider him to be a distant mentor. His name is Dr. Dallas Willard. And uh, he has had a significant influence in my, my life uh, in many ways and, and what I understand it means to be a disciple uh, of Jesus. And uh, that uh, influence hasn't changed. Uh, uh, we talked about the, a book that's kind of uh, core to where we've been traveling and where we're going, a book called Renovation of the Heart. Uh, I actually think a better title would be Renovation of a Ruined Soul. But nobody would buy that book because it doesn't sound happy. Um, you know, we don't, we don't want to talk about our ruined souls. We want to talk about our hearts, which is our, our heart is a component of our soul. And I introduced this image that, of Dr., that Dr. Willard uses a couple weeks back, and we're going to continue to, to use it and reflect on it. But the outer ring is our soul. And it, it contains, if you would, all of the component parts that make you who you are. And it seeks to integrate those parts the way God intended for them to operate together. 
And so uh, we spent some time a couple weeks ago talking about our heart, our kind of our, our spirit, our will, that are all kind of the scriptures use those words synonymously, especially in the New Testament, to talk about the core of who we are. We talked about guarding your heart, uh, for from it flows the wellspring of life. Uh, outside of that ring is our mind, and that's where we find our emotions and our thoughts, our thinking takes place there, which those allow us to both interact with our body, where we send messages to our body from thoughts we have and emotions we have, and we receive uh, you know, external input through our bodies into our mind, and it affects the thoughts and feelings that we have. And then there are relationships, and all of our relationships are used by God uh, to, to, to form us, deform us sometimes, um, and uh, then our soul integrates all of this together. And we've talked about, and we're going to continue to talk about God's plan of redeeming those. And that's why I think the, the book's title is better entitled um, Renovation of a Ruined Soul, because the Bible speaks that all of our souls are ruined, have been ruined by sin, or, and are in desperate need to be restored, to, 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 to be renovated. And like I said, we talked a few weeks ago about our heart and uh, kind of spirit and will and from that which our decisions flow. But today, I want us to take just a couple of minutes. We're not going to be here long because I want to talk about the bigger overarching soul. Uh, we're going to talk a few moments about our, our emotions and, and, and our feelings because they are part of God's strategy to restore our soul. Our, our mind has to be restored. Our thinking has to be restored. Our emotions need to be kind of restored as, as a part of all this. So I want us to think strategically, if you would. I know it's hard to think strategically about feelings, but I want us to do that. Uh, and, and maybe as we do this, maybe later on today, you can go back and think about your feelings. What, are, what have been your primary feelings in this last season of life? What feelings have been most prominent? And are they currently in, in, a, in a healthy place? And to, to do this today, I want to use a little graphic that I think Dr. Rick Blackburn was the first person I ever saw kind of use this. Um, and it's just simply two axes that explain our emotions. The first axis will be the vertical line that, uh, and, and we can think of our emotions as being kind of positive. These are emotions that we like to have. We look forward to feeling them. We, um, they're, they're, they're pleasant, but at the bottom of that line are, would be negative emotions. We don't want those. We wish they didn't, didn't come, but God even has a purpose for those. But, so our emotions can either be kind of positive or negative in our experience. Our emotions can also have either high energy or kind of be low energy. And so if you think of your emotions that way as positive or negative with high energy or low energy, it sets up this kind of grid, if you would, this uh, quadrants that we can think together about. And so I want you to maybe think about where do I find myself most often. Now, as always, everything we do around here, we filter through the Word of God. And so I want to I want to run this grid, if you would, through the Word of God and look at the lives of some of God's people 
and how they kind of land on the grid. The first one I want us to look at is King David. And in King David's life, uh, it's recorded in both 2 Samuel 22:30 and Psalms 18:29. And for those of you that uh, know Kim Blayton, she cleaned up my mess because I had squished those together and, and sent her the, the reference, scripture reference, Psalm 18, or Psalm 28:30, I think is what I sent her. Had, it's not there, okay? It's actually in these two locations. But this is what it says about King David. Um, it says, for by you, speaking to God, he said, for by you, God, I can run against the troops. So he says, I can, I can take on kind of an armed column. I can, I can run against them, God. And by my God, I can leap over a wall. Friends, if you are feeling like you can leap over tall buildings in a single bound, you are probably in the upper right-hand corner. You're in that part of the grid where your emotions are positive and they are high energy. I can leap over a wall. I can take on a column of troops. You know, I, I can run at that. that so you're, you're, if, if that's where you're at, you're probably in this upper right-hand quadrant. And most all of us want to always be there. In a minute, though, I want to show you that we can't. And it's actually harmful if we try to stay there. But, but stay there. But before we do that, let's, let's move on and think uh, again about another. I want you to think now about uh, another king, the one who was king before King David, King Saul. And in 1 Samuel chapter 18, we get a glimpse of his emotional health. Uh, we read these words about Saul. It says, Saul was very angry. And Saul eyed David from that day on. Verse 11, and Saul hurled a spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. He's trying to kill David here. It goes on in verse 29. It says, Saul was even more afraid of David. So here we're seeing these intense emotions of Saul and they're specifically described as anger, incredible anger and fear. So these are high energy emotions, but they're negative. We don't want to live, you know, high, highly charged anger. We don't want to live with highly charged fear. Now, remember again, what, what was the context? David was having great military success. He was working for, serving uh, King Saul, but, but King Saul became jealous. He became envious because people were writing really cool songs about David and not such cool songs about Saul, and he, he grew jealous. And this anger and this fear just grew in him. It, it led to a kind of a, a, a paralyzing fear and a murderous anger. That, that was what the primary emotions that Saul was experiencing. Then uh, there is the great prophet Elijah. And Elijah we can read about in 1 Kings 19. I want you to look at this passage with me. It says, but he himself, speaking of Elijah, went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and he sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take, take away my life for I am no better than my father's. Now, some of you may recall that just before this, there had been this amazing run of Elijah leaping over wall after wall after wall after wall. But now what happens is, Elijah's hit a wall. He's run smack into a wall. You know, he had, he had defied the prophets of Baal. He had given testimony on behalf of God, and it rained down fire. And then shortly after that, he outran a king's chariot for a distance of somewhere 18, 20 miles, something like that. I mean, it had been a good day. I mean, it had been an incredible day. He, he leapt over wall after wall after wall. But then he got wind that Queen Jezebel wanted to kill him. 
That was the wall he hit. And it leads him into this bottom quadrant, this quadrant where he has no energy. His strength has been, has been sapped. It's negative. It's unpleasant. I mean, his emotions were, you know, kind of in the, what we would call suicidal depression. He had hit typically rock bottom. But there's another quadrant of emotions that I want us to step into, and it's found in the 23rd Psalm. It's where David is speaking of God as the one who makes him lie down in green pastures. He can live a life without lack, not wanting. He can be beside still waters because he comes to know God as the one who restores his soul. And that's that upper left quadrant. It is very positive uh, kind of emotion, but it, it's not the kind that's making you leap over walls. It's the kind that's drawing you to lie down. It's the kind of quadrant in which you find yourself desiring to abide in Christ, not run hard, but sit in the presence of Jesus. Now again, most of us, because we live in the United States of America, we think we're supposed to always live in the upper right quadrant. We think that's what life is all about. I have to run hard, and especially, you know, if, if, you're, if you're somebody that's always thinking about, I gotta produce, I gotta produce, you know, that kind of thing. If that's your life and mantra, then that's where you're going to want to always live. You're gonna wanna leap over wall after wall after wall after wall. But here's what happens if that's the trajectory of your life. You will eventually end up like Elijah and you're gonna end up in one of those bottom two quadrants. You can't sustain leaping over wall after wall after wall. There has to be these moments when you go into that upper left quadrant to have your soul restored. And actually the more time you spend over there, the better your wall leaping abilities are gonna be the more joy that you're eventually gonna find because it's in that quadrant where God restores your soul. So if, you're, if you find yourself in the bottom tier, you need to try to make yourself not to the upper right. Don't try to get to the upper right. Try to make your way to the upper left where you can have your soul restored so that one day God will then be able to lead you to those wall-leaping moments once again. But I want us to spend the rest of our time together thinking about life in that upper left-hand quadrant, if you would. Life spent allowing God to restore our souls, to revitalize our, our emotions. Now, your feelings, your emotions are very, very important. You should never deny them. Don't try to, to, to run from them and hide from them. But please remember this, because in our day, this is true for too many people. You are not your feelings. They, you are not the sum of your emotions. There's more to you than that. And even your emotions, your negative emotions can be redeemed. They can be bought back. They can be restored. They can be, you know, your, your soul can be restored. And in the time we have left, that's what I, I want us to turn our focus is to Psalm 23, verse one that says, the Lord, he's my shepherd. And because the Lord is my shepherd, I know that my soul can be restored. Now, friends, please hear me say this. At some point in your life, you're going to need every phrase in the 23rd Psalm. There are gonna be days when every phrase in that Psalm needs to be 
vitalized or revitalized in your mind. You need to be able to think on it. You need to be able to pull it up. So if you have not yet memorized the 23rd Psalm, I would strongly encourage you to do that because out of that, you will find so much of the soul-restoring power of God. He restores my soul. And, and friends, that is, in, in the 23rd Psalm, that Hebrew word there is in the present tense. It, it, it is David saying, he's restored my soul in the past. He is restoring my soul right now, and I know he's gonna do it in the days ahead. It's this movement. David's saying, this is who my God is. Now, why, why is this so important? Why, it, why would it be important if the, if the Lord is, is our shepherd, if the Lord is, is the shepherd, if he's the one that's really leading us, why would we ever need to be restored? Why, why would that need to take place? Well, one of the big reasons that the Lord needs to restore our souls is because um, sheep stray. Do you know that about sheep? We just, we, we stray, we, 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 we walk away, we wander. And here's the truth about straying sheep. We can't find our way back. In our own ability, in our own strength, we are not capable of finding our way back. You know, we, we read about in the Old Testament, um, in Exodus, God's people, God's leading his people out of, you know, captivity and slavery over 400 years and they're, they're set free, and they're out in the wilderness, but they're thinking, we want to go back, and God has to restore their souls. Now, he's leading them. Remember how he's, he's shepherding and leading them. He's leading them in a powerfully manifested way. He's leading them by this great cloud during the day and a pillar of fire by night. They're, he's guiding them through their wilderness, but in their hearts, they keep thinking, we want to go back to Egypt. I mean, he's leading them, but their hearts are, are going astray, and here's the deal. Here's the truth about all of us, you and me. All of us, we don't find it easy to follow. It, 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 there's a place in our spirit, it's kind of a contradiction. Our hearts stray. Our obedience falters. Our, our faith kind of runs low and cold at times. It's just the truth about all of us. And you know, we find this is as being true. If, if our final salvation depended on how well we consistently follow Jesus, we'd be toast. All of us would be just, we'd all bust hell wide open. Thank God it's not based on that. That's why he restores our souls because we can't do it and we stray. And that's really the first point that I want you to, to be grabbed by as we think about this. Our soul-restoring Father, He rescues us when we stray. He comes to rescue us. You see this in both Testaments. In the Old and New Testament, God continues to use the example of sheep as an illustration of His people, of those who follow Him. In the Old Testament and even in the New Testament as believers, we all strayed. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 53, uh, the prophet Isaiah said, uh, empowered by the Spirit of God, all we like sheep have gone astray. All of us, we've all turned, everyone, our own way. When Jesus is walking the earth and he's teaching, one of the parables that Jesus tells that is a powerful parable is about sheep and, and a, about a shepherd. And we, you see this in Luke 15. In Luke chapter 15, there's those three parables of things that got lost. And one of those was this lost sheep 
the sheep that had strayed away. And in Luke chapter 15, verse 6, we read this. Jesus says, when the shepherd found the sheep, he put it on his shoulders, he carries it back. When he gets with his friends, he said, rejoice with me because I found my sheep that was lost. Now, I've heard this passage taught on, and I probably even have, taught on as a sheep that was lost to the shepherd and the shepherd went out and found it and kind of referenced it as, you know, speaking about lost people, people who are not in relationship with God. But friends, the story starts with this sheep having been one of the shepherd's flock. He was one of the, the, the shepherd's very own, you know, just, uh, and the shepherd goes looking for this lost sheep. And it tells us in, in verse uh, four of that, of that passage, it says that he went out looking for that lost sheep. How long? Until when? Until he finds it. He's not going to give up. He's going to keep looking until he finds it. Uh, just shortly later, Jesus tells the parable of the lost son, the prodigal son. And in that parable, uh, we know that the son belonged to the father. He, he, he was part of the father's household. And see, our, our position in Christ as Christians means that we're part of God's flock. We are the, the, shep, we are the sheep of his, of his pasture. We're, we're part of his fold. We belong to the father. We've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. We're, we're new creations according to, to the scriptures, to God's word. And yet, there remains in all of us a disposition to stray. To, to kind of wander away. How many of you remember this hymn? Prone to wander. Sing it with me. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I don't know why we do that. But we do it enough that they write songs about it. It's just true about the human experience, and, 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 and who we are. Now, Paul writes about this. Uh, he writes about the, why this happens. Look at this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul writes, and he's speaking of himself. He said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in what? That I live in the flesh... I live by the Spirit in the Son of God, uh, by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul is recognizing, though I, I'm living by faith because of what the Spirit has done, I'm this new creature, this new creation, I've been crucified with Christ, but I still got this flesh thing going on. I'm still having to live this out in my flesh. Paul is saying, God has begun a saving work. But it's still being worked out. That's why Paul says when he writes to the church at, at, at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1.18, he says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are, are being saved. That's, a, that's speaking of a process. We're in the process of having our salvation fully, fully revealed to us. And the Bible tells us it will continue to be a process. It will not be fully revealed until your eyes... And my eyes see Jesus in the flesh. That's when we will be fully, our salvation will have culminated and been consummated. We'll see it. We, we will then be, our salvation will be complete. But understand, this was present tense that Paul was writing to the church at Corinth about. This process is it's current and it's ongoing and it's going to continue until the day we arrive safely home with Christ. Now, if you're like me, 
you probably find yourself trying to understand what is this tendency in me to stray about? And one of the things that happens in my life, I don't know whether it happens in yours, as we begin to approach Easter and we walk through Maundy Thursday and we walk through Good Friday, those thoughts intensify in me. And I think about all that Jesus did. And I think about that week of passion. And I think about the beating and the shame and the ridicule and the suffering on the cross. Uh, I think about dying and being put in a borrowed grave. Jesus did all that for me. And why would I stray? And then he, he's raised from the dead. He conquers death. Death no longer has power over me. Sin no longer has any hold on me. I'm given new life, but I stray. It's because we continue to struggle in this. And David knew it. King David, who writes, the Lord is my shepherd, he restores my soul. David, who the Bible calls a man after God's own heart, had his heart depart. His heart departed in a very significant way. And he fell into a pit of sin. And in that sin, in Psalm 51, David finds himself crying out to God for restoration. In Psalm 51, David cries out to God and begs God. He, he, he comes to God saying, I need you to restore my soul, God. I need you to restore the joy of my salvation, God. God, restore me. And God does that. And it's not just Old Testament, it's, it's New Testament as well. God wants to do a work in his people. When we get to the end of the Bible, we get to Revelation and in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus has a message. Jesus is, is speaking to the church. He's speaking to the churches um, in, the, in the Asia Minor region. And the first church that he really speaks to is the church at Ephesus. Powerful church. I mean, it was the church that God used to launch a great movement throughout, throughout Asia and Europe. Uh, was, was right there in the church at, at Ephesus. Uh, John was the pastor there for, for, for a long, long time. The apostle John, Timothy had been there uh, pastoring and, and shepherding. And in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus speaks to that particular church. And I, I want to use it kind of as an illustration so that we understand uh, we're not so different. And we, we have some of the same struggles. So if you, if you have your Bibles and are in Revelation chapter 2, I want you to see a couple of things. Because this is the risen Lord speaking. And the first thing that he points out about the church at Ephesus was this, that they were hardworking. They were hardworking in their faith, in, in the ministry. Look at uh, verse 2 of chapter 2. Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. He says, I know that you work hard for the kingdom. So they were hard workers. They were also upright in the way that they lived. Jesus says, I know you. You cannot bear with those who are evil. You, you just, it, you can't, it, it breaks your heart. It tears you up on the inside. You're upright. He says, there were discerning. Jesus says, I know you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not 
And you found them to be false. They were, they were discerning. They were upright. They were, they were hardworking. Then they were loyal. Uh, Jesus says in verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. He says, I, I know all these things about you. But then we get to verse 4. Now remember, these are hardworking. These are loyal. These are upright. These are discerning Christians. And to those, Jesus speaks these words, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Friends, it is possible, not only possible, it is just true that we may be hardworking, upright, discerning, loyal, believing, kingdom-building Christians, and our hearts depart from that which we first loved. And here's why that's so uh, alarming. Because when, when a sheep strays, we said this already, he can't find his way back. He, he can't make his way back. And when you or I, when our hearts depart from our first love, when, when our hearts make that shift, we can't get back by ourselves either. We can't under our own strength get back. And that's why we have to cry out like David did, God, restore our souls. God, restore us, restore my emotions, restore my thinking, restore my heart and will, restore, oh God. We have to cry out for that. And our good, good father, our good shepherd longs to rescue. He longs to do that. And I want you to see the strategy that uh, Revelation 2 tells us that Jesus brings to us. That is his strategy for restoration here. In Revelation 2, 5, he says to the church at Ephesus, remember therefore, remember therefore from whence you have fallen. See, the place that soul restoration begins is when we, when we finally get a glimpse back into where things were right and good and beautiful and lovely. And it wasn't all about the hard work. It wasn't about all the pursuit of uprightness. It was, it was about our first love. See, you can be all those things, hardworking, upright, discerning, oil, and, and your heart can still grow cold towards Jesus. And he's saying, you weren't always like that. I want to I turn you back. You've lost some ground, but I want to remind you of where you were so that you can come back because better things can be true in the days ahead. And I want you to look at how he says that happens. The rest of verse five says, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent. Repent and do the works you did at first. In other words, repent and go back to Jesus. Repent and go back to make it all about Jesus. Not about building something, not about fixing something, not about your uprightness or your hard work. Get back to Jesus, your first love. Go back to Jesus. That's what happened in the story that Jesus told about the lost son. He got to that place where he, he realized he had lost everything. He was in, he was in a pit with, with pigs. His money was gone. His strength was gone. He'd wasted his time. He, he'd done all that. And in Luke 15, verse 17, it tells us that there, right there, he remembered his father. And he remembered his father's house and he remembered that in his father's house, even his father's servants lived well, lived better than he was living. And the next verse, verse 18, tells us that he said, I will return to my father. I will leave the mess that I am in and I'm going back to that place where I know I'm loved. 
See, friends, th- this idea of being rescued by God when we, when we stray, it starts with God reminding us. We can't, we can't figure it out on our own. God has to remind us. And then our response to that is to say, I want back there, God. I want back to Jesus. I want, I want to be where he is. And the wonderful truth is that God begins to restore. And that's what we need. If you've lost your peace. If you've lost your joy. You may be upright and working hard and discerning. But have you experienced loss of your first love of Jesus? Do you need God to restore your soul? Because this is what the good shepherd does. This is what our good, good father does. And you can ask him to do it for you if your heart has strayed. Again, that's what King David did. He just cried out to God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Restore my life with you, God. Restore our our relationship. And sometimes all of us need to go to God and say the truth about me is, God, I've strayed. I've strayed. One of the, one of the, wretched things about a real live sheep that strays is uh, being separated obviously from the fold, but there are some things that can happen to a sheep, not only when they stray, but sometimes even when they're still in the flock. Sometimes sheep, um, and and there's a great little book, it's hard, the the book itself is hard to find these days in print maybe, um, but you, you can get it on Kindle. And uh, it's called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. Philip Keller uh, is the guy who wrote this book. He had been a shepherd for years. And then he, God called him into the ministry. But in chapter 5 of that, that book, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read some excerpts from it. But in, in chapter 5 of that book, he talks about uh, something that can happen in the life of a sheep. A sheep can become what they call cast, C-A-S-T, cast. And a sheep in a cast condition, basically what happens is a sheep, maybe who needed to be sheared, has too much you know, fleece on it, or maybe it's pregnant. And so it's heavier than it needs to be. And it lays down, and it may kind of lay down, if it lays down on its side a little too quickly, can end up on its back. And a sheep in that condition on its back can't get up on its own. That sheep is cast Uh, some uh, old English call it cast down. That sheep is cast down. He can't get up. He's he's incapable of getting up on his own. And when he's uh, in that condition, here is what begins to happen to that sheep that Keller writes about. It says, as it lays there struggling, gases begin to build up in the rumen. Now, the rumen is, uh, they they have a a stomach that's multi-sectioned. A lot of animals do that. Uh, And it goes on, it says, as these gases expand, they tend to retard and cut off blood circulation to extremities of the body, especially the legs. If the weather is very hot and sunny, a cast sheep can die in a few hours. If it is cool and cloudy and rainy, it may survive in this position for several days. And then he talked about his experience of having to rescue a cast sheep. He says, tenderly, I would roll the sheep over on its side. This would relieve the pressure of gases in the room. And if she had been down for, a long, uh, for long, I would have to lift her up onto her feet. I would have to straddle the sheep uh, with my legs and hold her up, rubbing her limbs to restore the circulation to her legs. This often took quite a long time. When the sheep started to walk again, she often just stumbled, staggered, and collapsed in a heap once more. 
Have you ever stumbled and staggered and collapsed in a heap once more in your spiritual life? I mean, do, do, you, do, do you relate to that sheep? Man, I have. I, I have. Just felt like I, I, I was on my back and I couldn't get up spiritually and the Lord would come along and gently roll me over and lift me up. And I'd start going, but I'd stagger and I'd stumble and I'd fall. And the Lord would keep after. Remember, how long does the shepherd continue on until he finds you? Even if he has to put you up on his shoulders and carry you back, he, he's, he's going to, to do that. He's going to keep after you, keep pursuing you to restore you. That's who God is. He restores those who have gone astray. A second way that this restoration happens and this revitalization happens is this. Our soul-restoring Father revitalizes us when we waver. You could also put the word struggle there. He revitalizes us when we, when we struggle, when we waver and, and, and when we struggle. The good shepherd restores us out of that. Now, God's word is filled with examples, but I want to quickly give you five. These are five very, very different examples of, of people who, in the Bible, struggled and, and their faith wavered, just kind of rocked back because they were all carrying a heavy load. They were all kind of like that sheep that ended up getting cast. They were, they were all carrying something that was heavy. Now, the first one that I want us to look at is a guy by the name of Asaph. Do you know who Asaph was? Asaph was King David's worship leader. He was the worship leader in the temple when David was king. Now, remember who David was. David was like one of the ultimate worship leaders ever. You know, crazy worship leader, wrote all these worship psalms, songs and all. And Asaph is the one that David handpicks to be his worship leader in the temple. And Asaph kind of hits a wall. And he writes about it in the, in, in the 73rd Psalm. Asaph writes this, he says, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Now this is a guy who's in vocational ministry and he's leading, he's leading a nation to, to worship God and he's saying, I wavered. I stumbled, I, 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 I almost slipped. And as you go on and read, you find out what's happened is his, his heart is there because he's seeing injustice in the world. And he just can't, he can't understand. It goes on in Psalm 73. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, when he sees the wicked prospering, and he, he kind of looks to God and says, what up? Why, why is this happening, God? Why are the wicked prospering and, and your people, God, are, are just being beaten down? The injustice just caused his faith to waver. Have you, has that ever happened in your heart? You just see so much injustice in the world and it just caused you to struggle in your faith and wonder, God, what's that about? I'm, I'm trying to live for you and this person over here is just, you know, they're, they're cursing you and they're prospering. That's not new. That emotion is not new. And Asap witnessed that and it almost caused him to stumble. A second example of somebody whose faith kind of wavered and struggled, we've already talked about him, is Elijah. His faith wavered and struggled. He had engaged in this incredible, intense spiritual battle and his strength was exhausted. Remember, he, he understood the whole world was against him. The king, God's people, everybody but God was against him as he understood it. And he was he was exhausted from the conflict. 
And so he leaves this great place of victory, this top of Mount Carmel, and he's a wreck. He's a train wreck. He, th- he thinks his life has no more purpose. Look at this in 1 Kings 19.10. Elijah says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. He's saying, I don't have a purpose anymore. There's nobody, nobody else. Now, that, that wasn't true. He found out later that God had thousands more raised up, hundreds more raised up to, 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 for, for his glory. But Elijah was drained. He was wiped out, and he began to waver. A, a, a third is a group uh, that I want you to see. The group is the church at Galatia. These New Testament believers, they're, they're wavering and they're struggling. And Paul writes them in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. He starts out and says, and let us not grow weary of doing good. And he has to write that because they've grown weary. They've worked hard. They've been a little bit like the church at Ephesus. They've, they've worked hard, but they were growing disappointed that they weren't seeing more weren't seeing more people at church. They weren't seeing more uh, stronger faith in their own lives and the lives of people around them. They'd given themselves to ministry. They'd, they'd hoped to see more fruit, but they were drained because they were disappointed. They didn't understand. They, were, they, were, they grew weary of doing good. Another group that the scriptures tell us about are the recipients of the letter to the Hebrews. They wavered and they struggled. These, these Hebrew believers had given their life to Christ and pretty much from the moment they came to faith in Jesus, they began to be publicly shamed, humiliated. Uh, they had property taken from them. Some of them ended up being refugees, kind of like we're seeing in, in the Ukraine. It, it, it was horrible. And we read about it, that this happened right after they, they had trusted Christ. Look at this in Hebrews chapter 10. It says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, in other words, and after, after you gave your life to Christ, after you came to saving knowledge of Jesus, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. The writer of Hebrews saying, I know, this is the truth about you. You've been enduring this hard suffering. Their lives had become difficult and painful. And they at first kind of embraced the suffering, but then they began to grow weary. It had taken its toll. Friends, pain in this life saps your strength. It, 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 it sucks life out of your soul. And our emotions need to be, to be revitalized. If you lose somebody close that you love, it, it just tears at your soul. And you need God to restore your soul. See, most of us can can endure a share of suffering for a time, but when it goes on and on and on, we become disheartened. We, we, we struggle, we, we hurt. That's what was happening there to those who were receiving the letter to the Hebrews. And then the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul, he wavered, he struggled. And as an apostle, the Bible tells us he carried the great weight of all the churches All the New Testament churches, Paul felt this great weight. He had been either directly or indirectly with planting so many of them. And he expresses the sorrow of that in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul says, Who is sufficient for these things? Who can carry a weight like this? Who is able to bear up under the stress of of ministry like this? He goes on in, in, in 2 Corinthians, up in chapter 7. He talks about when they came to Macedonia. He said, our bodies had no rest. 
We were afflicted at every turn. There was fighting without. There was fear within. These are just five examples. Asaph, Elijah, Galatians, Hebrews, Paul. They all struggled. They all wavered. But I I want you to see how God revitalizes them. Now, does it relate to you if I say, you know, you want to find a silver bullet? You know, you want to find that one thing that fixes everything. I'm that kind of guy. When when I see a problem, I think, there's a solution to this. Let's find a silver bullet. It'll always take care of this. Friends, the thing that I've discovered in life, there's no such thing as a silver bullet. There's no one size fits all, solves every problem out there. I always look for that. And when I was working on this message, I was looking, but it wasn't one thing. It wasn't just one way that God did this. Well, actually, it kind of was. And here's, here's what that way is. Our soul-restoring Father revitalizes uniquely and personally. It's always going to be a little different. I want us to go back and look at those five again real quickly because he revitalizes them and restores them, and he does it differently every single time. If you go back and you look at the life of Asaph in Psalm 73... When you get to verse 16 and 17, Asaph says, so I tried to understand why the wicked prosper. He said it was difficult. You see, it was a difficult task. And then it says, then I went into your sanctuary. What, what was the sanctuary for Asaph? It could have read, then I went to work. I, I, went, I, I went into the office. Because that's where Asaph worked. He worked in the sanctuary. Remember, he was the worship leader. And he said, oh God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. It was there he got clarity. He just went to work. God met Asaph and worked to restore his soul just when Asaph was doing what he was called by God to do. Just doing the work that God had given him. God met him right there. But that's not how it worked with Elijah. Look how how Elijah got restored. It came through a time of rest. In 1 Kings 19, verse 5, it says, He, being Elijah, lay down, and he slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him. Anybody know that show, Touched by an Angel? Okay, that's where they got it from. Elijah got touched by an angel right, right here, and it goes on. And he said to him, the angel did, arise and eat. Elijah had this restoration of his soul, not by going to work, but through stepping into rest, going to sleep, eating a a good meal catered by angels. So we see Asaph, God worked where he worked, and now he works in, in rest for Elijah. What about the Galatians? How did God work to restore them? Well, he, he brings restoration to them, not through their work and not through rest, but through a promise. Look at the rest of verse 9 of Galatians 6. Paul said, don't grow weary of doing good. Don't, don't do that. And then he says, for in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. Now, I didn't include it in your notes. You can go back and look. But the verse just before this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 8 says, the one who sows to please his sinful nature will reap destruction. But the one who sows to please the Spirit will reap eternal life. Will reap eternal life. And so Paul is saying to the Galatians, here's a promise. 
Don't grow weary in doing good. Let this promise from God sustain you. Just let it sustain you. You're working to do good, continue to do that. Remember, when you see suffering, when you're struggling, you're only looking at a very narrow bandwidth of your life. I have so much more for you, God is saying. Here's the promise. I wanna restore you in the promise that there is so much more that I have for you. I have eternal life for you, so don't grow weary. Don't give up. Keep going. I'm restoring. God restores his people through his great promises. He revitalizes that way. Another way that God revitalizes, and he did this for the, the recipients of the letter to the Hebrews, he revitalizes by giving us a big challenge. Now, remember, we were in Hebrews chapter 10, and we saw that they began their walk with Christ and immediately hit the wall of suffering. They were just living suffering after suffering after suffering. That's chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 11 is what? Remember? It's the hall of fame of faith. It's where all the greats are spoken of and by their faith they, they did all these incredible things. And so he's encouraging them. But then we get to verse chapter 10, uh, excuse me, chapter 12, verse one, and we read these. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And then this is the challenge. Consider him. Think about him. Think about what he endured from sinners, such hostility against himself. Think about that so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. He gives to those recipients not, not a promise, but a challenge. A challenge to think about what Jesus went through. And then to Paul, he goes to Paul, and Paul needs revitalization. He's, he's weary. He's struggling in great ways. And in verses 5 and 6 of 2 Corinthians 7, we read this. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted, every turn, fighting without, fear within. Notice this. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. For Paul, God restored his soul by sending a friend. It wasn't in Paul's work. It wasn't through rest. It wasn't through a great promise. It wasn't through a new challenge. He sent a friend. He sent a friend to be used in God's hand to revive him, revitalize him, revitalize his emotions to, to restore his soul. See, God, when he comes to restore your soul, it's going to be intimate. It's going to be personal. It's going to be unique for you because that's our God. That's our good shepherd. That's our father. He restores personally. The Lord is my shepherd. He restores my soul. Now, friends, we can't do it ourselves. We, we cannot self-restore. We, we can't restore ourselves any more than we could have saved ourselves. We need God to do a work. We need to cry out to him. And the Bible tells us that God himself draws near. And that God, God comes 
and, and brings himself so that you will have a unique and personal and intimate encounter with him and he will restore you just the way you need to be restored at just the right time. When your faith is wavering, when your faith is struggling, the Bible says he's going to look for you and he's gonna look for you and he's gonna look for you until he finds you. And he's not gonna reject you and he's not gonna rebuke you. He's going to restore you so that you can find joy in the Lord. God loves, God loves to restore his people. Where do you need to be restored? Where does restoration need to come in your soul? Let's pray. Father God, we, we all come. I come bringing myself and my brothers and sisters, God, because we all, each and every one of us, have spaces in our souls that need to be restored. Maybe it's in our thought life, maybe it's in our feelings, maybe it's in our spirit, our wills, maybe our bodies need restoration. Maybe our relationships are broken and need restoration. And so, God, we come. We come saying, good shepherd, good, good father. Restore our souls. Restore each component part of our souls. Restore our body, our mind, our strength. We need you, God. We can't do it. We cannot upright ourselves when we're cast down. We need you, God. And I don't know, maybe, maybe you're here today. Maybe for the first time you came to realize that the Lord is not your shepherd, never has been. But you realize for the first time that he has a plan to restore your broken emotions. Maybe, maybe you've been living your whole life in the lower quadrants where emotions are so negative. And that just describes your life and you're looking for breakthrough. If the Lord's your shepherd, he'll restore your soul. And the Bible says to make the Lord your shepherd, all you gotta do is cry out. Jesus is the good shepherd all you got to do is cry out to Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, save me. I've strayed, I've wandered, I've done my own thing, my own way, and I'm coming to you now. I want you to be my shepherd. I want to follow you all the days of my life. I want you to restore my soul. And the Bible says when you call on Jesus that way, when you repent and turn to him to make him your shepherd and you follow him, Choose to follow him. He'll restore. But most of us here just need our souls awaken again. We just need to cry out to God, restore my soul, O oh God. Awake my soul, O oh God, so that I can be where you are. So I can find my strength in you. Lord, we come to worship you now as our God who restores. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.